1: Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I am excited to announce a new partnership that we have started, and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I am grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can Develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Excited to welcome Bryant University Head Coach Jared Grasso to the Basketball Podcast. Grasso has turned the Bryant men's basketball program around in three short years on the sidelines. Bryant is 40 and 44 in three seasons under Grasso. After going 23 and 71 in the three years prior to his arrival, Braswell has helped the Bulldogs grow into one of the region's top mid-major programs and guided the black and gold into the mid-major top 25 in 2021 for the first time in eight years. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Chris, appreciate you having me. Well, wonderful. I'm excited to be able to talk to you about so many things. But let's start with the real easy question. What do you do when you inherit a 3-28 and 28 team? <laughs>
0: You know, I'll tell you what, the first thing was, you know, get to know those guys who were in the program and embrace those guys. Um, They had been through a couple of rough years, obviously coming off a three and 28 season, the morale wasn't good. And I I had to get a feel for why were they three and 28? Was it personnel? Was it internal things? You know, you're trying to figure it out and you know, you interview for a job and you meet with the leadership. We had an unbelievable president. We have an unbelievable athletic director and the resources were here to be successful. So the question is why, why the struggles? Um, so I got to know the guys in the program, obviously hit the ground recruiting really hard, um, knowing we needed to upgrade our talent and then hit the floor and just tried to instill the culture I believe in of how hard guys need to work every day to be successful players, successful student athletes, successful in life and to have a successful program. And it was a little bit of a culture shock for some of those guys early on my expectations. And, uh, I came from winning and, and you know just had come off being at iona you know uh, iona college with tim clues going to ncaa tournament so i saw firsthand how to build a program at the mid-major level and i believed in those things so for me it was we're gonna get on the floor we're gonna work really hard the guys were bought into doing that will enjoy this and and really enjoy being a part of this the guys who don't are probably gonna weed themselves out just because they're not going to work hard enough to, to want to do this because It takes a lot of time it takes a lot of work to be successful and some of those guys didn't understand that um some fought it and that's part of the deal unfortunately and you know we ended up in that in in our first year and kind of were able to change the culture some and then as time went on we really were consistently able to do it as we added new bodies and added guys who were really bought into my philosophies and kind of the things we thought it takes to be successful
1: Having, having taken over two college programs in a similar situation, the one positive that I always knew was that the players that have lost a lot don't want to lose anymore. So you have a captive audience if, again, they fit your philosophy and if they can buy in. And that, that does help generate immediate dividends, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. And that was one of those things. There were, there were probably a handful of guys who hated losing, wanted to turn it around. You know, I want to be part of something special. And, and, you know, I was able to talk about some of the things that I was recently a part of. know, I mean, Going to an NCAA tournament is one of the best experiences of my life. You know, I, I can, that's the feeling you get from cutting down nets is something unexplainable unless you've been a part of it. So, you know, I was able to talk to them about some of those things. And there were guys who we don't want to lose anymore. We want to work. But sometimes they don't realize how hard you have to work. You know, like the meshed sounds good in that first week or two weeks. Everyone's excited and bought in when it becomes a month and two months and now it's six months and we're still working that hard that's the, that's when the adversity sets in and you do lose a couple of games or you're struggling that's when you find out who's really bought in who's going to fight through it when it gets hard and i'll tell you what that year one like those kids bought into winning we weren't an overly talented group our point guard was out for the year so we we're playing a, a starting point guard who hadn't played a lot of minutes we're playing a six foot three center but they fought and competed and us winning 10 games that year, you know, we tripled our win total. and But it was a success. And I said, that that was, to me, our staff did one of our best coaching jobs because those guys were bought in. We were an, uh, not an overly talented group and a really undersized group, but they fought, they wanted to win. You know, we, we ended up making the conference tournament, which they hadn't made two or three years in a row, lost in the first round to the one seed in a battle. So I think we kind of turned the corner with
1: guys wanting to win and starting to understand
0: what it took to win.
1: And one of the reasons for the turnaround and one of the big cornerstones of your philosophy is to play fast. In 2020, 21, you got to top 10 nationally in tempo and points per game. And I know a lot of that comes from the Tim clues influence, but uh, talk to us about that because that's not as easy to do as you think to get players to play fast. Is it?
0: Yeah, it's funny. Everyone thinks and everyone recruits and says, we're going to play fast and kids love it. And they like the sound of it. And they they think it's going to be fast. Like, like a hectic AAU game. Like it's an everyday thing. and, it's funny you say that. Like in year one, we tried all spring, summer, fall. We were flying, playing fast. Then we went to URI, couldn't make a shot, lose our first game by thirty. So we're, we're, I'm sticking with this. This is my philosophy. This is what we're going to do. Seven or eight games in, we lose to Yale by about forty-five. We're down fifty, and we came upstairs. Well, like, do we have to make some changes? And then we end up losing to Hartford at home. And I scrapped everything started walking the ball up the floor, tried to play as slow as possible, just to stay in games. And I wasn't comfortable doing it, but it put us in the best position to win. And with that group, we had the most success we could playing that way. Jump ahead year two, three, and four, we went back to playing the way I wanted to play. And see, it's a daily thing. Like, we're in February now. We're still working. We work on transition offense every day, where people will come in and talk to me, and I own a working for Tim. You know, Tim's system, people worldwide had heard about so people would come in and meet with us and say we want to play fast and then you would follow their team and you'd see they do it early they'd lose a couple games they stop doing it like it's a daily thing our drills are daily drills our philosophy is every day and even when you're struggling or scouting gets involved like this time of year there's all those other things the scouting the saving guys bodies but you still have to work on it because if you don't you will stop running And a lot of teams who play faster early in the year as the season go on stop doing it because they're putting time into scouting. They're saving those guys' legs. There's all those other pieces to it where, to me, it's got to be an everyday thing. And is it going to be where in the preseason we might do 50 minutes an hour a day of transition? Now it may be 15, 20 minutes a day. But there's not a day that goes by that we don't work on transition basketball and don't work on our pace.
1: So give us an idea. Like, how do you give a – Player a perspective on how fast you want them to run a wing, for example, because that is really the foundation of this is that they think they're playing fast, they think they're running fast. But what actual are they metrics, video drills? What are you doing to give them that perspective that they can go faster?
0: I mean, number one, we'll drill it regularly. Um, and when guys aren't sprinting, we just stop them. You'll do 20 push-ups, we'll start over. There are certain drills that we have to get through that if you can't finish it, we'll just stay, we'll we'll do that drill for an hour and a half. Like we're not going to get off it until you finish our transition drill. So we have
1: a couple of Is that fans. based on time or is it based on turnovers? Is it based on perfection? What are those drills based on?
0: Different drills. So some yeah. are based on time. Um, some are based on perfection. And there are certain drills that some days I'll base it on time. Some days I'll base it on perfection. If a ball hits the floor, you're starting over. If, in terms of getting the ball on the net. So we'll do a transition drill that the ball can't touch the floor. Um, we do a ton of video work with our wings showing them what it looks like when they're sprinting and what it looks like when they're not. So we'll finish practice, go through video and look at their first three steps um, and bring them in and show them the difference in pace when they're sprinting hard, when they're not. So we break it down in multiple ways, um, but you have to hold them accountable for it. You know, you can, and that's the biggest thing. Like and uh, you can't slip up. You can't take a, it's gotta be an every time you have to sprint because guys will take shortcuts when they can. Every kid has that in them that, and they're, they're, they know if today is going to be a two-and-a-half-hour practice and we're in minute 30 and we're doing all this transition stuff. In the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, i got to go two more hours. So if I can slow down here, and you just can't let them, you have to hold them accountable for every single thing they do, every step they take. And as you do that every day, they build habits. And then those habits over a long haul become, okay, this is the way we run our lanes. This is how quickly we get the ball. I mean, we're huge on how quickly we get the ball out of the net on makes. The ball shouldn't The ball shouldn't hit the ground. If it bounces more than one, we're stopping and punishing our inbounder. Certain spots are our our point guard outlet spots they have to get to. Their feet either need to be moving or they have to be past the hash mark on their catch. So there's certain little things that we're looking for. And after a game, we'll bring guys in and show them, you know, our transition wasn't great because look look at you getting the ball in the net or look at you running our three lane. So you're trying to put that all together with five guys, but individually do a lot of video work to break it down for them, to show them when they're really good, and when they're not to the level we need them at.
1: Awesome. And uh, so those teaching points on getting the ball inbound—is uh, it a specific player, or what are some of the other teaching points that you emphasize? Clearing the backboard, different things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a
0: set inbounder, um, which is which is our four-man number-wise. The only time we use numbers are our break spots, and there's times that's a guard. So that's one of the things guys have to adjust to. Like sometimes you're telling someone who's a big point guard, you're going to be our four-man, and when they hear four guys immediately think i'm a front court player like so you have to explain early on these numbers mean nothing except when you're running on your break and for our guy who's inbounding it's we want you getting the ball out of the net like shot goes up you should be blocking up then you should be blocking out then you should be in the paint to rebound so one of the things it does for that guy is it forces them to go defensive rebounds because they know they have to get it out of the net if it goes in so now they're blocking their guy out their guy's not going into the offensive rebound they're going to the paint to rebound Knowing, okay, if this ball goes in, I got to get this ball out of the net. Um, which is an adjustment for some guys because most teams don't play that way. And you know, we take a lot of transfers in recruiting, who guys who have come from different systems, different styles. So for some guys, it's an adjustment. But when you get a guy to buy into it, they can start your break. Like you can be really good in transition on mates if you get out of the net quickly. If you don't get out of the net quick, it doesn't matter how well your wing bring wings run their lanes. You're still not going to get er- the early offense you want. So. That position is huge for us, and to be honest with you, this is probably the best we've had two guys who, who do it really well. Um, I prefer having a set inbounder last year because we're playing four guards. There are times I let the closest guy inbound, which was the first time I'd ever done that, and I didn't love what happened when we got into the front court. Sometimes we weren't as organized as I wanted to get into our next actions, so I've gone back to having a set inbounder and – Thankfully, we have guys who are bought into getting the ball out of net quick and, and getting us into transition offense on make or miss.
1: Well, that's an interesting perspective that you tried both and you found the one that works for you. Uh, what, what are you emphasizing for the point guard then on an outlet? Say on a make, uh, we're going to inbound it as quick as possible. Do we want to loop? Do we want to curl? Do we want to straight, straight to the ball? What are we emphasizing?
0: We want a loop. So if you're anywhere rim or weak side of the floor, we're getting the ball preferably on the right side to middle of the floor with your feet moving. So I'd prefer you looping with your feet moving because obviously you're getting out in transition quicker with your feet moving and now your shoulders are facing the front court. So you can see the floor. If you're all, if you're far to the sideline, like if you can test a left wing shot, I'll just tell you get your butt to the sideline and get as far up the floor as you can. Like we want to make that catch as far up the floor as we can so we can get shorter distance, getting the ball to the floor. We'd love to get deep catch in the front court, and then a pass to the uh, pass up the sideline as quickly as we can. So for me, it's feet moving and try and catch it as far up the floor as you can.
1: So, watching some of the clips, the other thing, I mean, I'd love to be a point guard in your system. And that goes back to the Tim Clues days, too, right? Point guard has such, such a power within the, your system because, again, if the wings aren't open, it means they have space and they're allowed to push. Can you talk about some of the emphasis on the decision making for the point guard in terms of the hit ahead or point guard push decision?
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the first things, and I'll say to our, and I do it to challenge our wings, I'll tell our point guard, if you bring the ball to the floor and our wings aren't running, shoot the ball. If our guys didn't run, just go shoot it. Love that. So our wings are gonna run because of that. So we'll say, you know, if there's if our wings don't sprint, if they're behind you or our five man's not running, just pull up and shoot it. Um but like you said, if your wings are sprinting and you have a trail who can shoot it, now there's a big gap for you to go make a play. So If you have someone in in your two lane on the right side of the floor who can make shots and make plays, you got a trail man who can make shots. you got a lot of floor to play with. And we want those guys to be aggressive. Like if there's room to attack, go get to the rim. And that's why we want dynamic guards. who can go make a play off the bounce. I like point guards who can make threes off the dribble. Now some coaches aren't crazy about their, their players in general shooting threes off the bounce. And for some, it's a lower percentage shot. But if you have a guy who can make that shot, and defense is backing up. like we we rep that shot a lot. So my better point guards that I've coached and being with Tim and now coming here to uh to Brian, give it a shot you can make, I think that shot puts pressure on the defense. Now, you're forward guarding your point guard, bringing the ball to the floor, and you have a really good advantage right away where your point guard could go make a play. So I think our system is great for point guards, and it's big that our wings and five are running because if they are, a lot of times there's mixed matchups. And then you're just trying to take advantage of the matchup you have and play basketball. We, we teach more how to play basketball than running plays or sets. I'm, and I got a lot of that from my father. You know, I grew up with a father who taught similar philosophies 30, 40 years ago. Um, and then working for Tim, who was kind of very similar to my dad in philosophies and thinking outside the box for them, it was about their old school, high school guys who ended up coaching in college. My dad coached in the NBA for a minute with, with Rick Patino, but They're old school, outside the box thinking guys. And for me, its I'm not caught up in what everyone thinks or what everyone thinks is right. And I believe in our system. I believe in the way we do things, but I'm also willing to tinker with it and willing to play around with things and willing to look at different options and doing different things and find the best way to get an advantage.
1: I love that. That's uh, that's the right way to do it. And uh, especially at a place where, again, you sometimes have imperfect players, imperfect rosters because you're trying to do the best you can. And we'll get back to some recruiting talk a little bit later. But uh, what what are we unsizing in terms of the rim runner? Are we rim running? Are we we fanning out to the weak side, to the short corners? What are we doing with that player?
0: So he's making a read. If he's ahead of the action, he's running to the rim or opposite lane line um, if we can get him for a run out. If he's closer to the ball or closer to being parallel with the ball, we'll let him drag ball screen. And then depending who it is, if it's a guy who can step out and shoot it, we'll let him hit the weak side block and then step out corner. If it's more of a conventional post player, we'll leave him, the, him in the dunk spot and then kind of play. Like we'll usually play into some kind of motion or dribble drive. Um, we try not to run any sets at a transition on walk up. We'll run some sets, but it really like you and you just alluded to, it's kind of personnel based and it's been different based on different teams, different players. You know, I love in a perfect world to have five guys on the floor can make threes. So if it's a guy who can make threes, we will kick him out to the deep corner and move our wing up a little bit. Where again, if it's more of an inside guy, we'll leave him down in the dunk spot.
1: And then also personnel base, but uh, I know this is a big emphasis from watching some of your clips on Synergy. You do a lot of trail actions where that trail player becomes really empowered to be able to make some plays and be involved in a lot of two-player actions. Can you talk about the different things that you like to do with the trail actions?
0: Yeah, I mean, we we like having multi-skilled guys in that trail spot. So I'll put big point guards there. I want someone there who can make shots because it stretches the floor. I also like having breakdown guys there. And, you know, there's times the last couple of years, we've played a big point guard in that kind of trail spot where you can hit back to him. You can get him to a step-up ball screen. You can get him some drive and kick actions. You can get into some motion because he's got a great IQ. He can put it on the floor. He can make an open shot. So for us, a lot of times, that's a really a big guard. Um, and we want a decision maker there and, and a, a basketball player there. You know, I want basketball players, and size is overrated to me. Positions are overrated to me. I'm big on having basketball players. And, again, we'll throw guards in that spot. You know, Peter Kiss for us is a, you would say, a conventional two-guard, combo guard. I play him at the one, the two. There's times we'll throw him in the trail spot just so people are seeing him in a different spot. He's getting into different actions. So I'm comfortable putting different guys in those spots. And early in the year, I'll tinker with different guys at different spots. Because I think it makes you harder to guard when you can put different guys and different sides on the floor and teams can't get comfortable with this guy's always sprinting the left lane. I know he's going to the left corner. So I think it's nice to be able to move guys around. And I think when you have basketball players, you can do that.
1: It's great stuff. And, uh, And you already alluded to it, like flowing into concepts that you want them to play after the play. So after transition, you're flowing into some concepts and some different things like that. So are there triggers for those actions or are they scout based emphasis actions or player based personnel emphasis actions? What cues your flow into concepts?
0: Yep. You know, so when the ball hits our trail spot, to me, we're out of transition offense, you know, we're, we're into a half court offense and depending on who we have in that spot, we'll kind of do different things. We have kind of two or three guys we play there. So a lot of it is again, personnel based. So we have a couple different things we can do, Um, but it's more, basketball concepts than it is we're running this play so it could be a dribble drive it could be motion um depending on who's in that spot but it's more this guy's on the floor and it will be scouting based as well depending on who we're playing against knowing how a team's going to guard us we may go into something different out of our quote unquote secondary and it's not really. i don't call secondary someone else would um but it sometimes will depend on the matchup we're getting at that spot. What do we want to get into out of that matchup? Um, we're big on what the matchups are and picking on certain matchups at times. So because of that, we'll do different things based on what the matchup is going to be and kind of where we think we can pick on certain teams in certain concepts.
1: Yeah, a lot of fun. And uh, your players, obviously, when they get in the system, they must enjoy that. But hand in hand with tempo is defense and defensive tempo. And that's a big thing for you as well that it's not just one end of the floor. You want to play fast on defense, too, by pl- pressing and uh, putting some pressure on the, the offensive team.
0: Yeah, we like to get after people. We want to be aggressive. Um, you know, we, we're probably this year, probably about 80% of makes we're pressing on. Um, and it's that we have about six different pressures we can play, you know, some aggressive, some tempo. Um, I just think it makes you more difficult to prepare for. Um, and, and kids want to play that way, you know, and it's hard. They say they want to play that way until you have to practice that way every day. Now, I, I, and ever, there's a million ways to skin a cat, and there's a million ways to win games. So it's it's ever obviously every coach's comfort level. But for me, I want to be aggressive. I want to be in attack mode. I want the game to be up tempo. I want our guys to be able to play free. I don't want them thinking. So I want them knowing we can get after someone defensively. If we give up a basket, it's not the end of the world. Get the ball in the net, and push it back down their throat. Um, we'll switch up defenses kind of in the full court and the half court throughout the game, kind of trying to keep teams off balance. And I think it's something we've had some success with, um, you know, our defensive numbers when we took over here were amongst the worst in the country. And it's something, place where we really moved up. Um, having pretty good rim protection has helped that and trying to guard the three-point line are kind of two of our uh, key cogs to what we do. Um, but I think we're a little bit different in what we do and we're a little bit different to prepare for. And, It's a style I'm comfortable with. And it's just funny. Again, my father played a certain way um, and and similar was a pressing running coach. Kind of when Rick Retina was doing it at Providence, my dad was doing that as a high school coach uh, back in 86, whenever Providence went to the Final Four. Um, And then getting to work for Tim Cluth, who was another guy of that ilk, Long Island guy, same style, same thing. So, you know, I was blessed to be around two really good basketball minds. First growing up, I mean, my father was my hero and then is my basketball role model. A lot of what I do is really him and, and is, I got from him and I kind of have to pay forward a lot of the lessons in basketball that he's taught me. And then I was blessed to work for Tim who was just this old collar blue school basketball coach, basketball teacher, basketball savant. And I learned so much from them and took so much from them. And I knew when I got my own program, Was going to use a lot of the things i learned from them with tweaks and again i've changed a lot over the last four years because i'm not afraid to change things i'm not afraid to try things if it doesn't work doesn't work but being around outside the box thinkers was the best thing that ever happened in my career and we'll sit and talk in the office for hours about basketball which a lot of places i don't know if they do that just talking to other people just coming up with ideas what can we try what can we do different what can we look at because it's basketball changes and evolutionizes so many times that you try and stay ahead of the curve. So for me, it's, I've learned a lot of things from good people, but I'm still always trying to stay ahead of that curve.
1: I love that. And I I think you can tell that I share that same personality in terms of wanting to try things and learn things and apply things. And one of the challenges for me in that mindset was sometimes I felt like I changed too much in retrospect to try and tinker too much. Have you ever had that feeling and had to pull your back self back from that as well?
0: Absolutely. And there's times, I'll, there's times, I, you know, you'll, you'll do something in
1: practice and you'll
0: look at it and you go home at night and you think, eh, should, we, should we keep working on it? Or was that a mistake? And sometimes you say, you know what, scrap that. And, you know, maybe we'll come back to it and think about it over the summer, but it's not the time for that right now. Or there's times you do something, just say, bad idea, I was wrong. You know, when you're going to try different things, you're not going to get them all right, especially with, you have to see if it works for your group too. There's certain things that, could philosophically be right for some player or some team that might not be right for the group you have. So, you know, I have a notebook of stuff that I'd like to look at and like to try might not work for this group, but maybe next year's group or 10 years down the road, it's something I'll try and do. So it's funny. Me and Tim clues talk three or four times a day and the things we bounce off each other. Some of them are just completely off the wall. He'll call me laughing with a stat or an analytic or something he's gone through an idea. And I'm like, you're telling me that now because you want me to try it, because you didn't <laughs> want to try it when you when it was falling on you. But he he's so smart and we talk about some some really interesting things. So it's actually fun having for me having someone who I can have those conversations and dialogue with. And uh and, and there's times, you know, even at Iona, we tinkered with some things and we're like, you know what? Nah, it doesn't work. And there's some things we did at Iona that people are doing now, 10 years later, that we were way ahead of the curve. And when he was doing it, I was like, that's interesting, that's different. And now everyone's doing it, scramming and the different ball screen coverages that Tim was doing our first year at Iona when people weren't even talking about it. So it's great to see some of those things that he did. I know we're done before the time that people are talking about it. So if you have ideas, I tell people all the time, try them. Just because everyone's doing something doesn't mean it's right. And if you feel something and have conviction in something, see if it works because everyone's tinkering, everyone's trying to find their niche and what it is. And then Sometimes it becomes something great that everyone picks up on. You know, ball screen motion became this, you know, fad for two years, and now it's kind of gone. No, not a lot of teams in college are running it anymore, but there was a point where every game you were guarding ball screen motion. So it's just funny how things for, for a couple of years become, you know, successful and everyone's doing it, and then the next thing comes because it's a copycat game.
1: I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the Pick and Roll Offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined BasketballImmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, The pick-and-roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick-and-roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of BasketballImmersion.com, as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community. Coach, I love these conversations because I found one of the other things is that I always told my players, and I would sometimes acknowledge that, hey, we tried something and it just didn't suit us or didn't work because I explained to them that every experience they had in practice helped them become a better basketball player because of the IQ component. And just the exposure to something that might be different. So when you might think that some of these things screw up players, they actually, I believe in the end, help them because they just had more diversity of experience. Do you find the same thing? Absolutely. I think you want to put
0: your guys as in many different situations as possible and sometimes uncomfortable situations and things they haven't seen before. and because you do develop because of that, and you have to and guys have to adjust and learn learn things on the fly, see things on the fly, pick things up on the fly. You know, basketball is a fast-moving game. So because of that, I think it helps players learn, helps players understand, you know, like there's an evolution to a player. And it doesn't, from doing the same thing every day, I think you can kind of plateau that evolution and plateau their growth. So sometimes throwing new things at them, throwing different things at them, I just think helps their growth because – you want to put them in as many situations, as many spots as possible. Like I want my guys who leave here and have a chance to play after college to say, I've seen all these things already. I've played against this. I've seen this. I've done this drill. I've done this. So then they're prepared when when they have the opportunity to hopefully go make money that they've been through all these different circumstances and different things
1: and they're better players and have better basketball minds because of it. It's awesome. And especially in a system like yours, where they might be perceived as playing only one way, But then they can always relate back to someone and say, but wait a minute, in practice, we did all this other stuff too. So we know how to play any way you want to play. I'm also curious, Coach, do you have any players that are still left over from your first year that played slow? And now they can tell the players, hey, listen, we played slow. I know you think this is hard, but you'd much rather play this way. We don't. I Uh, I have a full new group (laughs)
0: now. Yeah, and in year year three, I ended up with a full new group. So last year was the last – Couple of guys were left. It was a couple of walk-ons, actually, um, but it's fun. Like guys will watch video of us from our first year, and I mean, we literally put it on our hip. we were holding till 15 on the shot clock and running a quick hitter for. I like, had two guys who could score at that point, and running a play for those two guys every trip down the floor. And I mean, I, it was very hard coaching that way, but it was best for that group. Um, but like, it, for instance, I had a, <laughs> so this off season, again, we brought in some transfers who came from different programs and. You know, I had one kid say after three days, this, this has been the hardest three days of my life. I said, we practiced for an hour a day for three days. Like, that was a layup, what we just did. Like, when we practice, and guys take pride in the guys who have been in our program, like, break those guys chops about it. They're like, you have no idea what's coming. Like, you thought that was hard? Like, there's, there's shooting drills we do. We have a shooting test we do um, to start every week. So it's uh, four different five-minute shooting tests, 20 minutes total. You have to get a certain number. If you don't get that number, you'll come back at 6 a.m. the next day. Um, and you can't shoot a three that whole week if you don't pass the test. So, like, we had guys come in over the summer, and I had a kid throwing up doing a shooting test. Now, for our returning guys, like, it's a joke. It's a warm-up drill for them. So to see guys – and this is a kid who actually came from a fairly high-level program. And it's just interesting because people just do things different ways and not to say it's right or wrong, but there's an intensity to to, to what we do and there's a pace to the shooting stuff. Um, So it's not easy. And the guys who have been through it now for two and three years can tell those other guys, if you continue to work, you're going to love this, but there's days it's going to be hard. There's days you're going to be tired and sucking wind. And there's days you're going to hate it and go to the locker room and lay on the floor because you don't want to get up. But there's going to be d- games where there's four minutes left and you're going to 10 minutes left. And you look at guys with their hands on their knees and say, all right, we're right when we need to be. We know how hard we work. We know how fast we play. We know how much time we've put into this. And you kind of, you build a pride in that. And that's what I've tried to do is make something that they're prideful in how hard we work and what we do every day. Cause it's not easy to play that way. And it's not easy to practice that way every day. So I make sure there's a pride factor in that for our guys.
1: So it's, uh, uh, th- Few things come up there, but let's start with the shooting test. Is it, is it a percentage per position or is it a percentage overall that somebody has to get regardless of position?
0: Overall number of makes, if you want to be allowed to shoot threes. So we'll start it that's we'll do every it week. We do it every Monday um, yeah. until the season starts. So okay. you have to pass it five times um, to be allowed to shoot a three in a game. If you don't pass it that week, you're not allowed to shoot a three in practice. So entail does two things. One, it shows me you can consistently make shots because it's every Monday. It's not something, you know, you're going out there, you know, you're doing it. There's a little bit of pressure on you to do it. Um, number two, if if you can't get your number, get in the gym and work, like you're deciding to take the shots, not me. So you can never come to me and say, coach, you're handcuffing me. I can shoot. No, just pass the test. It's the, the our high level shooters pass it every time. So if you want to be that guy, if you want to shoot threes and just get in the gym and get more reps, and I will tinker with guys form during the year. And I'll tell, listen, you need to move your hand behind the ball. You got to change your footwork, whatever it may be. Now, during the season, I'm not going to make you do it. I'm going to show you what it is. But if you continue not to make shots, you're just not going to be allowed to shoot them. So in the offseason, I'm going to make you make the adjustment. I want you to make it now because you're not shooting the ball well enough. But at the end of the day, get in the gym. You, I, I tell them all the time, you control your slots and shot selection. I don't. You're never going to say, Coach, why? You can't shoot because these are the numbers, and these are the numbers you need to make to be allowed to shoot threes for us. So. I think it puts the onus on them in terms of shot selection. And if you want to get more shots and you want to be able to shoot them, then get in the gym and get more reps.
1: And from the outside looking in, it seems like a lot of your practice is conditioning in a sense because that's the pace you play with. So do you do a lot of extra conditioning outside of practice or is most of it covered within what you do in practice?
0: No, 95% of what we do is covered in practice. Well, awesome. our guys have to make a 530 mile in the fall we really don't train for it very little with our strength and conditioning coach I actually do a poor job of that but they do have to make a 530 mile to get their gear until they make it they won't get their gear um so we'll do that you know a couple weeks before the start of uh start of practice that's probably the only conditioning we do outside of with the basketball in our hands um you know we'll run for losing or stuff like that in practice but outside of that our conditioning is on the floor
1: with the basketball So I want to talk about some of the Tim Clue's drills, and I think you use some of them too. But uh, start your practice with shot clock at five. Yep. So we'll do
0: we have a we have some build up stuff we do. Um, We'll do our four and three build up drill, which is a continuous four and three drill. We'll do a transition drill, um, a five second transition drill. We'll do a somewhere from – will start at thirty. We'll probably get down to twenty six seconds where you got to get five layups in twenty six seconds. We'll do the same transition drill where you have to make five threes in 35 seconds. Um, And they're all challenging. Outside of the four on threes, which we'll chart, and if you have a certain number of turnovers, you have to do it again. I'll reset the clock. Sometimes we'll do three minutes perfection where you can't turn the ball over. You can't miss a block out on both ends. We need perfection. Um, But there's about four or five staple drills that we'll do. most throughout the whole season. I mean, yesterday we were still doing our six line shooting, our four on threes. Um, so it's stuff that we do throughout the year. And it's just stuff that conditions your body to play at a certain pace and conditions you to be a transition team. So those things I've carried over from Tim, uh, there's a couple of drills I carried over from my father that are all transition stuff. And we'll tinker at least two or three of them into every practice. Uh, we'll scrimmage with a 10 second shot clock. We'll do a shot clock scrimmage where, You get as many points as seconds on the shot clock. So if you score in four seconds, you get 26 points. So we'll do a five, six-minute scrimmage where you're getting that many points. So the score will be in the 200s. Um, But the quicker you score, you get as many points or on the shot clock. So we probably have a dozen drills that we can do that are transition stuff that we'll tinker in throughout. Early in the year, we do all of them. Um, And there's stuff that are able to hold you guys accountable to the philosophy and to the style of play which we want to play.
1: Well, I know you and I aren't doing the math probably on that shot clock one, are we coach? You got to, got to have some people that it. can do the math.
0: <laughs> I, I have my players screaming at them. The players can somehow though. They're screaming at the manager about the score. I'm like, how do you know? Go play. <laughs> our, ma- our manager has no idea. He's trying to do the math counting. Our coaches are
1: yelling at each other about what the score is, but it's
0: good because guys are competing. So I like it.
1: Oh, I love that one. That's brilliant. I love that. That's a, such a great, great way to be able to emphasize again, how fast you're playing and how fast well with the advantage you can create if you play even faster so that's brilliant uh coach i gotta ask because you've had these experiences from your dad to tim clues to obviously now you as a head coach of playing super fast so you should be an expert in transition defense so can you give us some ideas about what you think some of the best strategies are transition defense to be able to again slow down some fast-paced teams
0: You know, I think if you're not, if you're really concerned with it, depending on what your offensive rebounding philosophy is, and I think it depends on a team's personality, there's kind of two ways. If you're a big physical team, send guys to the glass, chase the glass, because that's going to slow us, our wings down from getting out. We're going to have to be more concerned with our blockouts and rebounding the ball. So bigger physical teams can do that. And then if you're not a big offensive rebound team, shot goes up, you just need to be sprinting five back. Um, you know, I don't think, I think when you get caught in the middle is where you get in trouble. of, You know, you send them one or two to the glass, one guy's standing there. You know, I think that's where you get in trouble. But I think those are the two philosophies that kind of try and counter a transition team. Um, and then for us, it's still, we're still going to try and do what we do. So we're still going to try and play the way we play, regardless of how you're trying to stop it. And, you know, it's something that there are times where teams do a good job of keeping us out of transition, and we got to do a better job of our F-court execution, do a better job in our pressure. But then, The other thing you do is if you can speed someone up in your pressure and get them to shoot quick, quick jumpers, long rebounds, that helps us get out in transition. So I think it's a double-edged sword, and that's the great thing about basketball teams trying to, you know, counteract what another team is doing and making those adjustments, you know, for a game in in terms of game plan. And then throughout a game, if it's not working, is you have a plan B or plan C to keep that team you're playing against out of what they want to do.
1: Fun, fun. And one other creative thing that you do is switching defenses in the half court. So can you talk about that? Because again, I think that's just such an effective thing to be able to disrupt an opponent.
0: Yeah. I mean, we like to play multiple defenses. Um, again, like like being able to try to keep teams off balance. And, you know, it's something I'm comfortable with. It's something our guys have gotten comfortable with, you know, switching defense throughout, switching defense within a possession based on shot clock, based on where a ball goes. So and it'll be it'll be based on game. So it's something. Different teams will do different things. Different teams will match up in our zones out of different actions. So um, I think we do a pretty good job with scouting and trying to see what teams do and where we can kind of match up and switch our defense. And it's also something out of timeouts on free throws. We're going to try and switch something up just to keep a team off balance. If they've had success with something, you know, if they scored two or three times a certain way, we'll try and switch our defense. And for us, again, it's about keeping the team off balance and trying to have to make them adjust to us.
1: So being a transition tempo team, how do you work on half court efficiency? Because obviously that may be the challenge in terms of how you play in practice to be able to get really efficient in the half court on offense.
0: You know, it's something we do put time into, you know, we'll start a lot of our transition stuff with the half court set. Um, we do, we'll do our half court segments and half court execution stuff. Um, and again, you're never gonna be great at a million things. So you gotta kind of, and it, again, it, de- it depends on a team too. If you have a team, that you think can really execute in the half court you may take away from your rebounding or some of your defensive stuff to put more time into that if that's some place you think you can really be really good so early in the season you know transition is always going to be one of them um and our defensive style is going to be one but then you're trying to find like number 3 and 4 of what are we hanging our hat on and for some guys it's the same thing every year this is how we play this is what we do this is our system and this is it and we've had success with it and we're not changing from like there's unbelievable man-to-man teams who guard you they're physical they take you out of your stuff that's what they do for us it's a little different where year to year based on personnel and throughout a season you'll make adjustments and and decide that other things are more important than others and put more time to certain things so you know for us we've tried to be as efficient as we can in terms of getting the guys the right shots and right spots for me is a big thing um Putting the, having the ball in the right guy's hands um, and getting them to their spot. And that's something you learn as the season goes on. And then, you know, I'll, I'll add three or four actions a week, um, new stuff going into each week, stuff I've seen, stuff I have I think you can take advantage of another team with. But where a lot of teams just have the stuff that they run, and this is us, this is who we are, I'm not afraid to put new actions in. And, you know, some people think it's not the right way and you're adding too much. But if I see something I think we can take advantage of, I'm going to try it. and. Hopefully it works. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, but trust your gut and go with it.
1: It's awesome. It's it's fun to hear you talk. And uh, I I, t- I said off air we don't usually talk about recruiting as much on the basketball podcast, only because again we we represent people from all over the world, and recruiting is always isn't always as interesting to a lot of coaches around the world. But in this case, I think it is. And here's one of the things first that I want to ask you about, and that is, is it easier to recruit when you can point. To say the NEC conference or the national rankings, and it shows that you guys are scoring a ton of points. That seems to immediately resonate with a recruit, doesn't it? I think it does. I think especially with
0: transfers who didn't play that way, you can just show how many more possessions you have a game, which means this many more shots, this many more points, assists, rebounds, etc. Like well, I used to say it, I own it all the time. Like sometimes guys' stats are inflated because of the way we play now it's beneficial to you if you want to be a pro numbers do matter to some extent and it's not that you're taking bad shots or being selfish we just have more possessions which means more shots so you can sell that to 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 a kid um and when someone comes to watch us practice I think it's our best our best recruiters recruiting is guys being around my players and guys coming to watch us practice because we do things a little differently um we do things a certain way And sometimes it's a lot different than what guys have seen before, been a part of. So I see kids on the sideline on a visit, like getting excited. I go over and kids talk about this is great. This is what I need. I love this. It's a fun way to play. I think it's a fun way to practice. So if you're a guy who wants some freedom and I tell them like, you're going to have to work for your freedom. Like you're going to get the freedom that you deserve, which means how hard are you going to work on your game? Like some of these guys who are putting up numbers and taking shots, like, They're in the gym at three o'clock in the morning working out. They're in the gym at seven o'clock in the morning working out every day. They're working out three times a day. Are you willing to do that? Because that's what it takes to be that guy. But I do believe in our system, if you're willing to work like that, you're going to have the freedom and opportunities to be a good player and to be put in positions to be successful. So I do think the system helps in recruiting. And I think kids who come and A, numbers are tangible. Everyone can say, we're going to play fast. I can show statistically, well, this is what we do. Um, I can show the jump the guys have had in terms of player development from their their previous programs to coming here. So there's certain things we can tangibly show. And then when you put your eyes on it and watch a practice, kids kind of get excited because a lot of times it's a little different than what they're
1: accustomed to. So the other part of recruiting that I, I was fascinated in reading more about, and I want to hear some more from you, is this concept of offering a lot of kids. And the idea being that obviously you want them to commit as early as possible so you can start to integrate them into your philosophy and your system, even if they're not already at your school?
0: Yeah, so we will offer kids young. We'll offer sophomores and juniors. And those scholarship offers, like this people question, why would you offer so many guys? Well, hey th- if I've offered them, I think they're good enough. They have a scholarship offer. No, scholarship offer doesn't last for three years because other guys are going to commit, and that's going to change my roster. If I've offered you a scholarship, I will take you today. I want you right now. You commit, and I'm not going to recruit your position in that class. You're you're part of our program. But there's there's so many players between our country, internationally, junior college, and transfers that we're going to try and offer some guys who may be allegedly higher-level players. I'll take you right now, and if it's the end of your sophomore year, now I have two years to talk to you daily, weekly, monthly about the habits you need, the things you need to work on. So you're prepared to play in college as a freshman because the reality is most guys struggle as freshmen. You know, it's hard. And in, in the age of instant gratification, everybody wants to play. So I can pre- prepare a guy. If you've committed to me as a junior and if you have two years, if there's habits you need to change, if there are things in your game you need to improve on, if you need to work on your body, I can talk to you all about these things. So before the day before you step on our campus, you're going to know all the things that I expect from you and you need to get better at and the things you need to going to need to do to be able to play right away. Um, and then the second piece to it is there's some guys who you, you offer when they're young and their recruiting blows up. They end up at a higher level, but you've sold your program and yourself and your relationship. And with the transport portal the way it is and kind of college basketball going in the direction it is, you have a relationship with that guy. They already know you. They already know your program. And sometimes they're calling you the second time around saying, hey, coach, you interested in me coming uh, you know, I've decided to put myself in the transfer portal. Do you have any interest in me? And it's the guy that you like, you followed, you look at this stuff on Synergy, you make sure they've developed, hopefully, in a way you like. And sometimes you end up with those guys. So we've had multiple guys that, you know, two best players in my program were guys that I recruit offered scholarships very young. And one of them ended up coming. I was at Iona when I offered him. He ended up coming in here to Bryant. The other one ended up going to other schools and transferred as a graduate transfer. Um, but I had those relationships there already. So when the time came, they knew me, they trusted me. So it was an easier recruitment the second time around.
1: Well, and again, like I faced this in Canada, I would recruit kids that I knew were going to go division one with the mindset that says, if it didn't work out, they knew about us already and that makes it easier to recruit them the second time. And that's.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just think it's, uh, you, you have to keep up with, with the direction things are going. And I just thought for me, when I took over, I thought it was the smartest way to recruit. Um, and we also, for us, like we spread our wings a little bit. We weren't just recruiting. They were offering kids in new England. You know, I'm from New York. So I recruit the metropolitan area a lot of a guy, my staff from Philly, guy, my staff from DC. So we spread our wings into other regions. And we, I mean, as time went on, we moved down South, we moved out West and, there's a lot of really good players out there. So when people look at the numbers, and say, oh, you're off for 300 guys. Well, there's 300 high major players coming out in, in one class, you know, mid-major plus high major guys in any given senior class. So we're recruiting good players. Now, a lot of them may end up at a higher level or want something different the first time around. But Why should I not recruit them? Because if I get a guy coming out of high school who's going to be a game changer, it's silly for me not to be recruiting that guy. Am I going to get him? Who knows? When a kid's a junior in high school, there's a lot of different things that can happen, and a lot of guys are heavily recruited as juniors. Their recruitment falls off for whatever reason, and then their senior year, they're reaching out to you. like it's. There's no exact science to it, and every kid's recruitment is different. So for me, it's if you see a kid you think you want and a kid who could be a successful player in your program, and and you would take him off from a scholarship. And I do explain, I'm recruiting a lot of other guys, and I want guys who want to be here. The biggest thing for me is, I want you to say I'm excited about going to Bryant. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to play for Coach Grosso. Those are the kids who do well. When if the kid is ah, I don't know, maybe. I usually say, "You know what? Probably not the right fit." I want you to be excited about this because I'm excited about you. And I know if you're excited about coming here and being a part of what we do, you're going to have a good career. I just I've seen it through my whole career and a lot of the best players I've ever recruited have committed on their on their visit, on their unofficial visit because they knew it was right. And those guys have had a ton of success. So I want guys to want to be here and want to be a part of it. And thankfully, we've been able to find a good group of guys the last few years who have been excited about what we're doing here and have bought into what we're doing here. And hopefully we can continue that in the future.
1: Two other quick questions then about recruiting. One, how do you evaluate shooting in the recruiting process? Because obviously shooting is very important to you. How do you evaluate that? Really difficult
0: um it's probably the hardest thing to evaluate uh Imagine. we've had guys i mean we've had you know you you go based on guys numbers you watch a guy work out i will look at guys form and if there's a if they have a couple like bad quirks and they're they tend to be streaky guys you know when, when you have a couple things wrong with your form unless you rep it a thousand times a day you're probably not going to be a high level shooter um so i will look at guys form then you look at guys' stats, and, you know, sometimes they're deceiving. Um, we've had guys we brought in who were 35%, 40% three-point shooters that came to us and didn't shoot it like that. We've also had guys who were below 30% shooters who ended up being 40% plus because their form wasn't terrible. They hadn't put as much time in that they needed to. They hadn't repped it the way they needed to. And my thing is, all right, you were a 12-point-a-game scorer. You want to average 20 a game and try and go be a pro. like. You're a 6'4 guard. You have to be able to shoot at 38-plus from three. Are you willing to put the time in? And we have guys who put a ton of time into it, and it's something we demand. You know, we do individuals most days outside of practice as well, and we get a ton of shots up in practice. Like, you're not going to be a good shooting team if you don't get a lot of shots up. And our group this year has not shot it as well as I thought we would. Like, we had eight returning guys who had shot 36% or better from three, and we have not shot as well as I thought. Why? I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I still have those, those guys taking those shots. Like we still have taken, I think we're top 40 in the country in three-point attempts uh, per game. And I'm okay with that because I still believe those guys can make shots. I have confidence in them. They have confidence in themselves. And to me, that's the most important thing.
1: And then the second part is to evaluate toughness, which I, again, I know is important to you. How do you evaluate a toughness in the recruiting process? Again, another tough
0: one. Um, that's a feel thing. And when you watch a guy play enough, I think you can kind of get a feel for their competitiveness. You can get a feel for their physicality. Are they afraid of contact? Will they go chase offensive rebounds? Do they sprint back on plays? Like that's toughness to me. Toughness isn't fighting. Toughness isn't elbowing someone. It's do you play every play to your fullest? Guys who do that and have a motor that you can watch them an AAU game or a high school game or a transfer, up 20 or down 20, is their motor the same? Because I think tough guys, motors don't change. They just play the same way because those are their habits. It's not, this is a big game. I'm up for this game. I'm going to play with more juice. It's, we could be playing in front of 50 people. We could be playing in front of 50,000 people. This is my innate motor. This is what I do. These are my ha- my daily habits. So I just do this every time I step on the floor. And I think that's the biggest piece is, does it change up? Or when you watch them based on they could be playing a bad team, good team, in front of no one, biggest game of the year. If they're that same person in their competitiveness, in their physicality, in the way they run, in the way they interact with their teammates, in their care of winning, if those things remain the same, I think you got a pretty good shot at getting the
1: tough kid. Coach, this has been awesome. I loved getting all these insights into what you do and how you've done things there. And, uh, Brian, you've turned it around. So what have been the biggest pieces to get this turnaround going?
0: You know, I think it started with day one really giving ourselves to our players, um, letting them know we care about them, letting them understand that we're here for them and to build them as student-athletes, and we are going to hold them to super high standards. And I say in recruiting all the time, like, I'm going to hold you to really, really high standards. If you don't love to play basketball, don't come to Bryant. Now, you have a chance to get a world-class education, beautiful campus, great area, and I'm going to hold you to three or four hours of basketball and weight and strength and conditioning and video every single day. That's part of what we do during a season. If you want that, you have a chance to be successful. And I think we've been able to bring in guys who were bought into getting a great education, um, playing in a program that where where we've had a chance to have some success and you know kind of turn around what was a struggling program, and guys who want to win and and want to develop to be pros. You know. Over the last 11 years, I've been blessed to recruit 38 guys now play professionally. So, and it's only been at the mid-major level. So I say all the time, like, I've never coached at Kentucky. So I don't know what recruiting is like at Kentucky. I've just never done it. But I know what recruiting at this level is. I know what it takes and the kind of players that can be successful for us here. Um, And I think we've been able to kind of target the right guys who are committed to winning, committed to getting a great education, and committed, committed to putting a lot of time into basketball and working really hard to reach their goals. So we're blessed to have a really good group of tough, committed guys. And it's been a joy to coach the last two years. And hopefully we can keep building this thing. Really excited about the future here.
1: Well, I'm excited for you and excited to watch more Bryant basketball. So great stuff, coach. Thank you for sharing the game with us. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to immersionvideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at Immersion Videos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.